Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. This is everything you need for tips, tricks, and things to just be generally awesome. I'm your host, Amanda. And I'm your host, Claire. And this is RDH Bites. Welcome back, everybody, to part two of our Diabetes Drugs podcast series. This is your host, Amanda Mitchell, and I would love to welcome back Lisa Mayo. Lisa, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Amanda. So can you tell me a little bit about what we're going to cover today? So this is a two-part podcast, today being part two. We're going to continue our discussion on the pharmacological management of diabetes. In part one, you and I discussed diabetes statistics. We talked about the differences between type one and type two diabetes. And then we wrapped up discussing four drug classes used in the medical management of diabetes. So today I'm going to keep moving forward and discuss our remaining drug classes. So I would recommend students, if you haven't listened to part one yet, I would do that before listening to part two. I felt it was important to break up some of the content of the drug classes because there's so many that having a certain amount in one podcast was enough to learn. And then today, if you have those committed to memory, we should be able to move on to the remaining classes. Yes. And we also discussed what diabetes is, the differences between type 1 and type 2, how the drugs interact for type 1 and type 2. So I think it's a very, very good idea to go back and listen to part 1 before y'all listen to part 2. Okay, Lisa. So like I said, we already covered a great overview. We even covered a little bit of emergency protocols for today. For part 2, Tell me a little bit about why this is important to you. Why are we going over these diabetes drug classifications? Yeah, actually, I want to share a story with you guys that is actually probably going to provide a little bit of a review from part one, just because it intertwines into my story. And it's a good story about the pharmacological management of diabetes, and it involves my mother-in-law. So my mother-in-law is a, I'm going to call her a non-compliant type 2 diabetic patient. When she was first diagnosed, she was put on metformin, if you guys remember that from part one, that is our stereotypical first-line drug used in the pharmacological management of diabetes and prediabetes. Remember, metformin is a biguanide class of drug whose site of action is on the liver. Now, for my mother-in-law, that drug worked really great and all went well for the first couple of years. And then just out of the blue, one day, she decided she didn't need to take her metformin anymore because she kept telling everybody she didn't have diabetes anymore. And as we talked about in part one, when you're diagnosed with diabetes, you have it for life. It's like getting diagnosed with periodontal disease. Mm -hmm. Well, within a week of her deciding she doesn't have diabetes anymore, deciding she doesn't need metformin, she wound up in the emergency room. She had actually developed diplopia, which is double vision, and she couldn't see straight, which her big thing was that she couldn't drive. And then she started having a hard time walking because every time she put pressure on her left foot, she kept telling me it hurt. 
So now she does also have rheumatoid arthritis. So we've got this autoimmune disease on top of this inflammatory disease of diabetes. So she really just kept thinking her foot pain was related to her RA. But no, by the time she showed up in the emergency room, her blood glucose was 635. Wow. And students, for reference, in the dental office, 240 is our emergency level. That's when we're calling 911. So that's almost three times, you know, her glucose was almost three times the amount that we would call for from the office. Absolutely. Yeah. For those that aren't aware, what is an acceptable blood glucose? I mean, seven to 110 ish. (laughs) Yeah. I I usually say 70 to 120 outside of that. And then after a meal, immediately after a meal, 180 is acceptable. But after taking insulin and everything, it should go back to that 70 to 120 range. Absolutely. You know, many colleges and different practice dental offices, they require medical clearances or consultations when a patient keeps showing up with a blood glucose level over 240, like you said. So 635 is way outside the range of quote unquote normal. And it was a life-threatening range. So uh, unfortunately, while she's in the ER, she has to kind of start fessing up to some stuff. So we find out that she stopped seeing her medical doctor and she hadn't done an HbA1c in over a year. When she was telling her husband, she was going every three months. So now she's in the ER and she can't see or walk. Her foot had neuropathy Mm -hmm. and her vision was lost. Both of these problems were to do to poor glycemic control. Diabetes is the leading cause of blindness due to diabetic retinopathy, and patients are more likely to have cataracts and glaucoma that have diabetes. So this is what was happening to my mother-in-law, and unfortunately, I mean, she did get her vision back, but it was never back what it was before. Mm Mm-hmm. So, of course, she's told to take her metformin, and unfortunately, that wasn't enough to control her glucose levels. When she hit the 635 range and had all this medical emergency issues going on, she went back on metformin, but it really just wasn't controlling those glucose levels the way it was before because she'd injured her body so badly. So now she has to have additional drugs to control her glucose levels. Also, you got to remember, she's non-compliant with diet and exercise as well. So then they put her on glucotrol, which is a sulfonylurea. And if you remember that from part one, that drug site of action is actually directly on the pancreas to try to release more insulin. So now she's on a metformin that's affecting her liver. Now we put her on a sulfonylurea that's going to directly act on the pancreas. So that actually works for a couple of years until she decides to do the same thing again. Oh, no. Now, and this is actually just recently, but now the medical complications got worse. And she's now on what they consider the last resort drug prior to putting her on exogenous insulin. She's on Victoza. And that may sound familiar from different commercials that you see in the United States. Victoza was, I felt like, all over the media channels in the U.S. for quite some time. And we're going to discuss that last resort drug in this podcast. So you'll know a little bit more about that. So just to finish up her story, the last resort If this last resort drug fails, you know, she's going to end up on exogenous insulin for the rest of her life. And then we just hope that she doesn't lose more of her vision due to noncompliance. This is, wow, such a crazy story. 
Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think that we probably all have some sort of personal you know, memory or history with a patient or a family member that has diabetes. My aunt that I was telling y'all about in the last episode, she first, you know, tried to have a baby against her doctor's orders. This was in the 80s. So diabetes was a lot different, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And oh, that hurt to say a little bit, 30 to 40 (laughs) years ago. Okay. So (laughs) a lot of our listeners weren't even around in the 80s, let alone the 90s. So (laughs) here we are. So she, you know, as a consequence and her, you know, glycemic control was not there. She lost her vision completely. She never regained her vision. Then she ended up, uh, she had to have a kidney transplant and that didn't work. So she was on dialysis for many, many, many years, which is not ideal for patients at all. So she had no kidney function at all and had to be on dialysis. And then she got gangrene. So the neuropathy, she didn't notice there was an infection in her foot. So eventually she had both feet amputated to the ankle and she was in a wheelchair. So diabetes is not just about diet and exercise. It's also a systemic disease and we need to treat it as such, especially in dentistry, because we know glycemic control and periodontitis affect each other equally. So if we have poor glycemic control, we're going to have poor control of periodontitis and vice versa. If we can help patients get a hold of their periodontitis, we can actually help with glycemic control. So this is a super, super important topic for all of us to understand. Okay, Lisa, so last time we covered four drug classes, and today we're going to cover the remaining five. Which one should we start with? So again, I like to attack my diabetes drugs when I teach pharmacology by body system that they influence. So I want to start in the stomach, actually, and I'm going to start with the alpha-glucadase inhibitors. Now, their site of action is in the stomach. So nothing with the liver, nothing with peptides, nothing with enzymes, nothing with the pancreas. We're going to the stomach. And what these alpha-glucanidase inhibitors do is they interfere with the carbohydrate digestion through enzyme blocking in the stomach. So basically what these drugs are going to do is they're going to delay glucose absorption and prevent glucose levels from having these huge spikes after meals. Like you said earlier, after somebody eats, it's common for that blood glucose to go up. What we don't want it to do is spike on up to three or 400, 180 is fine, but This group of drugs will prevent those spikes after meals. The common medications in this class of drugs are Precose, it's P-R-E-C-O-S-E, and Glyset. Those are the most two common that you see. And Glyset is G-L-Y-S-E-T. Now, the adverse reactions to these drugs are GI upset. And that should be pretty apparent because their site of action is on the stomach. It's on the stomach, right. Absolutely. (laughs) So GI upset can occur because that's typically coming from the small intestine. Good news with these drugs is they do run kind of like metformin, which is a biguanide. They run very little risk for hypoglycemic reactions and weight gain. 
So they're much like metformin in that they have a little less side effects other than maybe some small intestine discomfort. Got it. I think it's important here to review for students who maybe haven't taken nutrition yet. Carbohydrates always break down into the most basic building blocks of a carbohydrate, which is glucose. So if we're interfering with carbohydrate digestion, we're therefore interfering with glucose absorption. Oh, thank you, Amanda, so much for that. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. That's something I struggled with as a student. I was like, what do you mean glucose is from carbs? I love carbs. <laughs> but and now you we need know. carbs. You need <laughs> yes. carbs to survive and you need them for energy. It's just when we have too many of them, our body doesn't know kind of what to do. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So the next class of drugs I want to talk about, and this is a really long word. It is typically abbreviated capital T. Z as in zebra and D as in dog. So T, Z, D. They are the thiazolidiodones. Got it. such a crazy word. It is. <laughs> Typically what most pharmacology instructors do is we call them diodones. It reminds me of dinosaur for some yeah, reason. Yeah, <laughs> So the T, Z, Ds, the diodones, what they do is they increase the sensitivity of your fat, muscle, and liver cells to insulin. So it enhances the insulin response. Remember, this is in type 2 diabetics. Many times their receptors on their muscles and their fat and their liver cells don't do a great job of binding and keeping insulin bound to them. And, and we've got to bind that insulin for insulin to actually have an action in the body. So what the TZDs do is they kind of enhance those cells to be able to get insulin to bind so you get a response. Mm, okay. So they decrease the fatty acids and glucose from the blood by kind of enhancing insulin's effects. And they allow for a more efficient removal of glucose from the blood. I see. So basically we're using glucose more efficiently when we're using the TZD drugs. Yeah, we're able to actually get insulin to do its job <laughs> to remove that glucose out of the bloodstream to kind of, you know, cover up the fact that you have type 2 diabetes. It's trying to take damaged receptors and make them function somewhat closer to what they used to. We're giving them a jump start, it sounds like. Absolutely. We're trying, <laughs> okay. they're trying to help out receptors that are defective. The most common drugs that you will probably have a familiarity with in this group, they both begin with the letter A, Actos, A-C-T-O-S, and Avandia. A-V-A-N-D-I-A. Now, because this drug class is messing around with receptors, not only on fat cells, but muscle cells and yeah. liver cells, you are going to have the potential for multiple adverse effects because you're messing with so many different parts of the yeah. body. Now, I want to ask really quickly, thiazo, thiazo, that sounds a lot like hydrochlorothiazide. Oh, goodness those, gracious. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, Don't get those mixed up. <laughs> they're, not, they're not the same. They're not related. But when we think about why do we use hydrochlorothiazide, right, mm -hmm. for fluid retention and mm -hmm. blood pressure, I'm looking here and it says these TZD drugs, one of the adverse effects could be Fluid retention. Fluid retention. There it is. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. So this is just another example 
for everyone where these two drugs sound similar, but they are not. They actually have opposite adverse effects. They do. They ah. do. Yeah. This group of drugs, the diadones, they can cause fluid retention like you mentioned, but also weight gain. And because you're getting fluid retention and weight gain, you could also get swelling. Right. So they have been linked to, and this is a side effect that you will see on the warning label of diadones. They've been linked to an increased risk for heart disease, bladder cancer, and liver damage because of those side effects. I mean, if you have fluid retention and swelling, you know, mm -hmm. that means your blood's not circulating around in your body the way you want. Would a diadone be prescribed for somebody? I'm going to use your example, Amanda with high blood pressure or with some kind of cardiovascular disease? Probably not. They'd probably stay away from this group of drugs, maybe skip right over them and maybe put the patient on insulin right? because we can't risk these adverse side effects. But in patients where they don't have these adverse side effects, the diadones are a great group of drugs. They're a newer class of drugs. Um, I think they came about in the late 90s, early 2000s or so, you know, as just a, another way to attack and, and try to attack this type 2 diabetes and try to make these receptors what they used to be. Hmm. Okay. Whew. So we've made it through two of the five for today so far. Just finished up with the TZDs. What is our next drug class? So this drug class are called incretinine mimetics. And incretinine, because it's a podcast, let me spell it, is I-N, so in, I-N-C-R-E-T-I-N, incretinine mimetic. Hmm. So what does the word mimetic mean to you, Amanda, if I say that word? What comes to mind? Mime and copy. And I, you know, of course, I have a funny story for this one. When I was in college, you know, you work all these odd jobs. And probably the oddest job that I had was being a mime and a human statue, basically. So if people would come up and start making hand, you know, like movements or dancing, I would mime and mimic, copy them. Okay, I love that. Yes, no, that's exactly <laughs> what incretinine mimetics are. <laughs> and at the end of the day, let me kind of explain this a little bit. What incretinins do, what is an incretinine? You got to know what that is because you got to know why this drug is trying to mimic it. So incretinins stimulate beta cell growth and regeneration. Incretinins are a group of gut-derived peptide hormones. And students, you learned about one of these hormones in podcast one. We talked about the GLP-1. That's a, a peptide from part one of the podcast that is going to be secreted in your body rapidly after you eat a meal. And as a reminder, GLP-1 is secreted from the small intestine, goes to the beta cells of the pancreas, and causes the beta cells to release more insulin. So it's kind of an assistance, if you will, to insulin production from the beta cells. So these incretinins stimulate beta cell growth. They stimulate regeneration. Maybe somebody has with type 2 diabetes has damaged their beta cells. If you can get these incretinins to do their job, you may be able to get some regeneration. And that's what this group of mimetics does, is it, it kind of mimics those actions of the beta cells. Incretinin mimetics are delivered typically as sub-G injections and used as a last resort drug prior to starting exogenous insulin. And this is the drug that they put my mother-in-law on. I told you they put her on Victoza. 
Victoza is an incretin mimetic. You will, if you watch the commercial, you could probably YouTube it and watch the commercial of Victoza. You'll hear them say these words that I just said to you. <laughs> the other common drug in this category is Byretta, B-Y-R-E-T-T-A. So you'll see that, it, you know, this is another class of drugs that is a gut-derived peptide hormone that's going to the pancreas and trying to kind of mimic those actions of what beta cells do. And again, it's a last resort drug prior to starting exogenous insulin. And if it works, great. If it works great for my mother-in-law, I hope it continues to work. I hope she continues to take it because starting insulin is never a place that your doctors want to get you to. You know, that's always now something that you're going to have to monitor. Your risks for side effects of hypoglycemia go way, way, way up. And it requires a lot of compliance on a patient's part when they are strapped to exogenous insulin. So those are your incretinin mimetics. That's what they do. Got it. Ooh, okay. So if you're up for it, the next place I want to go, we've got two more drug classes. And the next place I want to go is I want to go to the kidney. Okay. Okay. So we've talked about the pancreas. We've talked about the liver, the stomach, small intestine. The fat muscle liver cells. Got it. With your diadones. Okay. And then, yeah, we spent some time in the stomach too. Yes, we did. Alpha inhibitors (laughs) and, you know, a little bit of the incretinins too. They have an involvement with the small intestine as well. Okay. So now we're going to move to the kidney. Now, students, you're starting to kind of see, you know, how comes patients are on three different diabetic drugs? You know, why is my mother-in-law on Victoza? Why is she on an incretinin mimic? And she's on metformin. Like, why is she on more than one medication? And it's because these drugs are targeting different areas. And she's also on a sulfonylurea. Mm-hmm. You know, that sulfonylurea is messing around with the pancreas. Victosa is an incretin mimetic. So it's going from the small intestine. It's those peptides that are messing around with the beta cells, trying to make those beta cells work better, work more efficiently. And then she's on her metformin, which its target site of action is on the liver. Now, if all three of these combinations of drugs start to fail, it's going to be game over. She's going on exogenous insulin and probably continuing on multiple of these pill form drugs as well. So we have another class of drugs that now, it's the first class of drugs I'm going to talk to you about that are site of action on the kidney. These are sodium, glucose, transporter two inhibitors. Okay. That is the drug class. That is what this class of drugs is called. The most common drug in this drug class is, and I'm going to apologize if I'm saying this drug wrong, Invocana, Invocana. I have a little bit of a Southern accent, so I could be messing (laughs) that up. It's so funny because, you know, I'm from the Midwest and you and I met in Texas and now I live in Tennessee. So everybody's like, you know, everybody says these words differently across the country. Oh, yeah. And, and, and internationally as well. Yes, <laughs> I'll be in some pharmacology CE and I'm like, what drug are they talking about? Because I can't understand the accent spin. So <laughs> uh, Invocana is I-N-V-O-K-A-N-A. Again, this is another last resort drug. 
that doctors will try for their patients prior to putting them on exogenous insulin, similar to your incretinib mimetics as well. So what sodium glucose transporter 2 inhibitors do is these drugs promote glucose elimination in the urine. So again, side of action is on the kidney. What they do is they block the reabsorption of glucose in the kidney. So this word reabsorption comes up a lot in pharmacology books. And I have many students that get so confused just by like that term. If I just say reabsorption, what do you think about that term, Amanda? It confuses me to no end. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) You're confused as well. (laughs) Reabsorption. Well, how do you reabsorb something that's already absorbed? Absorbed. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So, okay. So when we say reabsorption, you got to remember that the kidney is made of millions of nephron cells and they are in constant flux. They have sodium, potassium, water, calcium, glucose. They've got things moving in and out of them at all times. So some of these molecules are going to pass into the kidney while others are passing out. And this is to maintain a homeostatic balance by this pumping mechanism. And and you guys all took anatomy and physiology. You can probably visualize what I'm talking about here. So when you say the word absorb, that means the molecules are going into the cell. The kidney is absorbing whatever molecules going into that cell. Let's say it's going to absorb glucose. Glucose is going to go into the kidney. So when I say that I have a group of drugs that blocks the reabsorption of glucose, this means glucose is being blocked from exiting the cells of the kidney. It means you're keeping glucose in the kidney, in the nephron. You're not letting glucose pass back out of the cell and get back into the bloodstream. So that's what we're saying. We're blocking the reabsorption. We're preventing glucose from leaving the kidney and getting back into the blood. That's what the word reabsorption means. Got it. So let me give you an analogy. When you wash your dishes, you can say, do you ever wash your dishes with a sponge, Amanda? I don't wash the dishes. That's my husband's job. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know what? I have one of those husbands too, but he's been out of town. So I've been forced to do dishes. Okay. (laughs) So I I had to use a sponge. Yes. If I were to wash dishes, then yes, I would use a sponge. Use a sponge. Okay. So think about it. When you dip the sponge in water, the fluid is absorbed into the sponge. Yes. Yes. The sponge gets thicker. It, It absorbs all the water. Now, when you wring out the sponge, you're extracting that fluid, right? The fluid is leaving the sponge. So what this drug class does is it causes the sponge to retain the water. So even if you tried to wring out the sponge, the water would stay in the sponge. And that's what glucose is doing in the kidney. It's staying in there. It is not reabsorbing back into the blood to, you know, raise people's blood glucose. And that's what that sodium glucose transporter 2 inhibitors are doing in a nutshell. Got it. What do you think so far? I'm loving it. Now reabsorption makes a lot more sense. You could think of my sponge. Yes. (laughs) And my poor husband doing the dishes. Sorry, Ty. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually only have one more drug class. We're almost there. What do you think? All right. Let's do it. Let's dive in. All right. Last drug class. We're going back to the GI system. Okay. Okay. So this last group of drugs is called Amlin, A-M-Y-L-I-N, analog, anti-diabetics. Now, this side of action is on the GI tract. 
the drugs actually slow the gastric emptying, which delays glucagon secretion post-meals. What this does for patients in a nutshell, when you delay gastric emptying, this increases the patient feeling satiety. You know, what does that mean for those that are unfamiliar with that term? That just satiety means you feel full and you don't feel hungry and you don't feel like you want to eat. So my memory trick is when you are satisfied, you have satiety. Yes, that's exactly (laughs) what I was about to say. And when we review nutrition, I say this, you know, which of these would be more satisfying, you know, a cup of spinach or Mm -hmm. a cut of steak, you know, and people, Uh, you know, which is more satisfying, which is going to make you more full at the end of your meal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think it's the vegetable. (laughs) I don't think it's the spinach, personally. Yeah, Yeah, I don't think so either. Sorry, I didn't have a vegetarian example there, but... (laughs) (laughs) So amylin analog anti-diabetics, okay? They slow that gastric emptying, which delays glucagon secretion post-meals. It is given by an injection, sub-G injection, and it is indicated as an adjunct to insulin in type 1 and type 2 diabetes. The most common drug in this class is Simlin. That's S-Y-M-L-I-N. Simlin, okay. Simlin. You will be less familiar with this drug class. And there's a very good reason why you're less familiar with it. I mean, I've maybe seen in the last two years of private practice, maybe one, two patients on an Amlin analog anti-diabetic because the problem with this drug class is there are a lot of black box warnings So a black box warning, if you guys forgot or you're not familiar with what that is, this is the FDA's highest warning on a drug. It means that drug carries very serious life-threatening risks. And let me give you two examples of things that you guys have happened in, in all of our lifetimes that you'll remember. In August of 2016, the FDA required all opioids, benzodiazepines, and cough medications to carry a warning that the combined use of these medications can cause serious side effects of extreme sleepiness, respiratory depression, coma, and death. All the more reason for, you know, the opioid crisis, you know, why are we losing so many people due to that crisis? You know, at least in 2016, the FDA stepped in and said, hey, by the way, this drug can kill you. Right. (laughs) And they had to put that on the warning label. It has a black box warning label. And a lot of drug manufacturers don't want black box warnings because, you know, doctors are going to be less prone to want to prescribe them. Patients are going to be more intimidated by them as well. Another example you guys will remember is in January of 2011, the FDA required products that had acetaminophen, so that's your active ingredient in Tylenol, that any drug with acetaminophen had to limit the over-counter dosing to 325 milligrams. And if you're going to have higher than that, you now have to put a warning label on the product that it runs a high risk to cause liver damage. And I'll tell you, I saw this actually this past fall, I got a really bad cold. It wasn't coronavirus or COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. It was just a really bad cold. And I bought Theraflu. And Theraflu had 625 milligrams of acetaminophen in it. So I turned the package over because I know this from pharmacology. And like, sure enough, there's the warning label. Anything over 325 milligrams may cause at higher risk to cause liver damage with prolonged use. So that's a black box warning. And that group of drugs that that Simlin drug has that black box warning on it. 
that it can cause different types of major issues. So again, it's not a drug you see people on a lot, but it is out there. And the last part of pharmacology I want to mention to you guys with diabetes drugs are these new diabetes drugs that are considered what we call combination drugs. My students ask me about these a lot in clinic because they'll go to look up a drug, they have to do drug cards at their check-in, and they'll say, hey, Professor Mayo, this drug says it's a sulfonylurea and a biguanide. How can it be both? And I'm like, great question. It's a combination drug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there are uh, three commonly used combination drugs that actually combine themselves with metformin. And they'll usually combine metformin with either a sulfonylurea or a diadone. So metformin action, like we said earlier, is on the liver. And if you remember from part one, a sulfonylurea site of action is on the pancreas beta cells to release more insulin. Then we just learned in this part two that a diadone mechanism of action is on fat, muscle, and liver cells. So combining, combining these drugs, so you can take one pill to get multiple different actions. And they can be helpful to assist those whose glycemic control is very poor, and it helps avoid becoming insulin dependent. The most common drugs that you will see is when metformin combines with diadone, they call it Avandia. And when metformin plus a sulfonylurea, that's glycoburide or glipizide. And I know this will sound familiar to you students, because I know you have patients in your clinic that you have seen all these medications because they're so commonly prescribed. So Amanda, that has walked us through all nine different classes. If we include this combination drug, that's 10 classes of diabetes drugs on two podcasts. Woof. That was a lot. (laughs) We did it. Yeah, we did did it. You did it, students. You did it. it. Yeah, yeah. So I think this was a really great overview, and there was a lot of information. So students, you know, take all of this with a grain of salt. You can listen to it as many times as you need to. You can pause it. You can rewind it. We're always available for questions. I know a lot of you are already signed up, but Lisa does three of our topics for the summit sessions. And I think that you would benefit greatly from attending pharmacology, especially. This is her specialty, really. I mean, you can't get any better than this. So (laughs) thank you guys so much for coming. Lisa, thank you so much for doing a two-part episode with us. And we hope to have you back again soon. Thank you and good luck, students. Bye. Hey, everybody. This is your co-host, Amanda, with a quick announcement. Have you looked at our VIP package yet? This has everything you need to help pass your national board exam. Whether you live in the United States, Canada, or really anywhere, our VIP package has something for everybody. We have recorded lectures, live lectures, curated and calibrated content made just for you to help you pass. Visit us today at studentrdh.com to sign up and for more information. See you next time.